welcome everybody to a, another Instagram live and we also have Facebook live going so we have the dual um, the dual uh, presentations yeah good which is exciting so I'm Dr. Bryn Cooper of orthodontics and this is Dr. Elena Kennedy Nasser um, with Pure Pediatrics yeah thanks for having us yeah thank you for coming so we're excited to have a pediatrician because I get asked so many questions um, that relate to overall health right and um, what I also <laughs> love Dr. Elena's practice model mm -hmm. um, so I thought it would be really awesome for people to know that there's more than one model of medicine for their kids to partake in so um, Tell them a little bit about your background. Okay. And your and just a little bit about what you specialized in and then how you got into your current practice. Okay. And we'll talk through the mask. <laughs> I know. Don't worry, give us another year and maybe we'll be able to do this without the mask. Um, yeah, so I go by Dr. Elena. Uh, my husband is Dr. Nasser, and so whenever someone says Dr. Nasser, I'm like, wrong, wrong doctor. Uh, and so I uh, went to medical school in San Antonio. I actually have a degree in broadcast journalism from SMU. Strange, but that was what my major was in, and I loved it. It's a great time. Uh, and it was, I think it helped being real, very well-rounded going into medical school because mm -hmm. so many people had more of a degree in biology mm -hmm. and so forth. Um, and it helped with writing skills, which yeah. is very good to have um, once you're a doctor as well. And a very good handwriting, which is a strange little known fact which is rare for a doctor yeah so there you go. I had a few rarities going into medical school um, went to med school in San Antonio at the University of Texas Health Science Center San Antonio uh, and met my husband there exciting who was a resident uh, <laughs> it was very Grace Anatomy <laughs> and uh, and then from there we both went to New Orleans I did residency in pediatrics at Tulane he did pulmonary and critical care fellowship because um, he had done internal medicine while I was in San Antonio and from there we came to Houston so I could do fellowship at Texas Children's Baylor yep. College of Medicine and did pediatric hematology and oncology an additional three years of training and then whew, finally done <laughs> uh, four kids later finally done training uh, and I stayed for five years as an assistant professor at Texas Children's and did bone marrow transplant, mm -hmm. mostly high-risk leukemia and lymphoma, um, and difficult to treat bone marrow failure syndromes. Um, I loved what I did, but at the same time, I saw a lot of, for me, what I felt was a little bit of a lack of preventive care. Yep. Meaning, I felt like we got really good in medicine at disease management and treating, but we mm -hmm. haven't stopped to say, but wait, why'd this happen? Or are there things that we can do to help prevent some of the illnesses we see later? And I really do believe all of that starts from infancy. So your nutrition is actually very important. You know, the, the saying, you are what you eat, is actually true. <laughs> um, in the middle aisles of the grocery store or where you should really avoid, that actually is true. Yes. The outside perimeter is where it's at. Um, so anyway, so I left the academic practice uh, and my husband was very kind when I called him up and said I wanted to leave academic medicine and start a private practice because I'd happen to take my own two children, two of the four, to the pediatrician and two hours later I called him and said is this how it actually works? Like it, you know, it was just, the system to me was very inefficient. I had five minutes with the doctor 
and it was very clicky buttons and, and you could tell like you know it's not really even the doctor's fault it's just the system in place yep. is that you have to see large volume of patients and so I didn't really want I guess my children to be a number and I definitely don't want anyone else's children to kind of to be a number and so he was very nice and said sure you can start your own practice <laughs> good luck and I said we'll be fine uh, build it they will come and so I started the first concierge pediatric practice in Houston. Um, I still will see some hematology consults yep. or some kids with some pretty chronic illnesses because I'm very good at that and I enjoy it. Um, and you know, we have a great system of pediatrics of specialists in Houston yep. and it's a great city for medicine. Um, and so our practice is unique and different in that it is a low volume concierge, you know, practice. Um, yep. And that's what I started. Yeah. And she really does practice what she preaches on this whole eating thing and, you know, just the advice that she gives. My child is in the treatment with her, and so, like, the first thing she said was, you know, make sure you're feeding her the right things, and it, and that will take care of a lot. And sleep, right? Oh, yeah. It's the eating and the sleeping. And if you right. can take care of those two things, a lot of other things will fall into place, which you always tell me. Right. I mean, it's true. And then, you know, it's really important. You know, I think parents always think, are these baby visits important? Mm -hmm. And they're actually really critical. You know, we really need to make sure that the ba baby's brain is growing really perfectly. Mm -hmm. We never want to see a head circumference that's falling off a curve, for example. Yeah. But, you know, we also want to see the babies are thriving. They're in their environment, but they're thriving in their environment. And they are getting proper nutrition from go. Yeah. Probiotics. Gut health is very important. Overuse of antibiotics is a huge problem. Yep. And I think minimizing the overuse of antibiotics is key as well to keeping kids ultimately healthy. Yeah, and dentists are some of the number one people that give out antibiotics a little bit too much. We've been working on it as a profession. <laughs> we have. Um, but I also get to see things that you're talking about because I don't see kids until they're six or seven, which a lot of people are like, well, they're six or seven, like mm -hmm. they're fine, right? But there are so many breathing habits that I've seen, yep. dietary habits, just like, um, and even just the types of food that you eat can affect your teeth. So I'm totally on the preventative train. If you've watched anything on my Instagram live or Facebook, then I talk about how you can prevent really needing me as much um, because, and it's just really those first six, seven years. Then if you even wait till mm -hmm. they're teenagers with permanent teeth for them to come see me, then even it can progress even further. So, right. yep. Anyways, that's the similarity in how we think. So it's yeah, good. It's good. Um. All right. So, what do you think the biggest difference for patients is between a traditional model mm -hmm. and your model, mm -hmm. and even maybe in the sense that it may be better, mm -hmm. but that people aren't used to it, so it's a little bit confusing, right? Oh yeah. I mean, so when we started the practice, you know. People, you know, either hear about you or they see you on the internet or something and they call. And usually most parents' first question was, do you take Aetna? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and we always are like, great question. Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> yep. So the traditional model from my standpoint is that mm -hmm. insurance-based practices rely on heavy volumes of patients because of the way reimbursement works with insurance companies. Mm -hmm. I mean... It never fails that when I see a form of doctors talking, for example, in a, in a pediatric Facebook group, sure. it, most of the questions are all about trying to get insurance reimbursement. Mm -hmm. So at some point, you start to feel like the provider is actually being, working for the insurance company. Mm -hmm. 
and it's not actually working for the health of the child. And I think almost every pediatrician I know is awesome. And that's the good news. And so most of the families who ended up coming to our practice say they already had a pediatrician. It really was more a matter of, I love Dr. So-and-so, but, and it was just the office or it was the fact they had to wait or it was the fact that it was a five minute visit or they couldn't get them on the phone. So in our practice, you know, I basically took everything I didn't like about going to the doctor and changed it. <laughs> so I didn't like small waiting rooms. Yep. I didn't like small exam rooms. Okay. So our office is set up. We have a nice, very nice waiting room. Yeah. We're actually in the middle of an expansion, so we'll see how big the waiting room ends up being. <laughs> um, so, you know, we have a nice waiting room, but my actual office is large. So we have a play table for the kiddos. I have a desk. Mm-hmm. I have a couch. So the patients then come into the office because we might be sitting there for an hour. Yep. But by the end of the hour, you know, we know the family pretty well at that point, and they feel comfortable calling you in the middle of the night and waking you up. <laughs> that was an adjustment. <laughs> yes. I have to say, like, there were a few times I waited till 8 a.m. and I was like, <laughs> Yeah, and so everyone has our cell phone, and so my only rule is, you know, never worry alone. So if you're worried, you know, doctors, we're used to waking up and falling asleep and waking up and falling asleep. Um, so we very early on, of course, use text messaging. We use a HIPAA secure texting app. Um, we use telemedicine very early on. Mm-hmm. Um, so when families, once they're in their practice, if they have a rash, they're just sending us a picture of the rash and we're like, oh, that's X, Y, and Z, this is what you do. But in a traditional model, they really needed that patient to come into the office because they weren't getting reimbursed from the insurance company if they didn't see the patient. Right. And I think that was always a bit of a, a problem in the traditional model. Um, so with telemedicine, with COVID, I feel like that's actually gotten better and that insurance companies are now needing to reimburse for telemedicine for regular providers, which is great. Yeah. Um, that's good because I feel like so many things we can handle virtually. Yep. Um, and you know, your time is your most valuable asset that you can't get back. Nope. Right. And so at the end of the day, you know, most of our families, they don't have the two hours to go to the doctor and to go through kind of that system, yeah. they really need to come. And they want to spend maximize their time, I think, with us and not with a computer or clicking boxes or, or that sort of thing. So the model's different. And the main thing is that we're a membership-based model. And mm-hmm. so families pay a monthly or an annual fee, because I'm sure there's a discount. <laughs> and that way, they're just members of the practice. And it covers all of their physician care. And then they just have our cell phone number, and they call us all the time. <laughs> the funny part is I'm like, I think everyone in Houston has my cell phone number now. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, and we answer it, and I think that's what's important. Yes, yeah, that's a big deal. Right. Because, um, you know, it, and I think some people are fine if you set the hours, as long as within those hours you're available. You're extraordinary because you don't even set hours and you're available. Yeah, but kids always get sick at night. If you're, you run actually a higher temperature at night. Yep. So if they're going to spike 104, it's going to be after 5 p.m. Yep. It's not going to be usually 8 in the morning. Of um, Right. And the only trouble parents ever get into is not listening to their own intuition. And if their intuition says, call the doctor, you call the doctor. Although I do joke because I feel like firstborn children, mm-hmm. you know, kind of the, I think the, the joke was, you know, with a firstborn kid, you know, if they swallowed a coin, you know, they range the emergency room and x-rayed them, yep. and, you know, looked for the coin, 
And by the fourth child, the mom turns to the kid and says, that's coming out of your allowance. <laughs> you know, so there, you know, I do find the more kids a family has, then, you know, there does come this sense of calmness of, oh, okay, well, he swallowed a coin, but it looks okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's true. Um, and I definitely see that, too. Like, mm -hmm. as people get used to a system and they're used to having, having a child's an adjustment. I mean, oh, it's huge. And each one is. So mm -hmm. as you mentally adjust to having those children and what's okay and what's not okay, it does kind of settle into that calm. So, right. Um, all right. Let's see. What? We have a question. Oh, we do? Yeah. Okay, cool. Can you diagnose accurately virtually? Yeah. I mean, so it depends on what the problem is. Mm -hmm. I mean, for example, we get a lot of rashes. Yeah. Um, and through our Hippos Cure texting app, and you know, hand foot mouth disease is hand foot mouth disease. <laughs> you know, we used to have chicken pox, but I haven't really seen chicken pox since my own older two children had chicken pox, uh, and that was quite a ways back. So, you know, some things you know have come and changed as time goes on, but you know, we see a lot of rashes virtually. Um, and then with telemedicine platforms, it's even somewhat easier that you know we can even look in their mouth. They're coming out more and more with all this smart technology mm -hmm. so that, you know, the big thing is to be able to look in a child's ear. And they're finally coming out with that technology really? so that the patient, you know, can use something so that the doctor can see on the other end inside the ear. And so I think more of those things will come just like being able to do, I mean, 20 years from now, you'd want people to be able to easily do an EKG, uh, do almost any of these things from their home. And I... And part of me thinks the pandemic might push that technology to happen even quicker because wow. what we saw was that when healthy people who are relatively healthy, you have a cold. <laughs> okay, yeah. so we're still going to lump you as healthy. But then they end up in a waiting room with other people who maybe have diabetes and heart failure and all these other things. And you bring your cold into the waiting room or your rash, your hand foot mouth disease. <laughs> then you know now you're potentially spreading that to people who maybe aren't healthy mm -hmm. and that's where we have a problem so that's one of the other things that the pandemic showed us was hey virtually actually works pretty well and 80 percent of medicine is history taking so usually someone can tell me a story and i'm like uh-huh uh-huh uh -huh. i know it's wrong and that's the good news and then you know that other 20 percent, you really need to sometimes see the patient for sure um and, you know, we're always available, of course. Yeah. Yeah. We stayed open during the pandemic. <laughs> Push forward. Yeah, we did too. Yep. So I think most healthcare providers, if we could, did, you know. Yeah. Um, we all wanted to be there for our patients because it was kind of, there was a time when we didn't really know what was going on. I think we have much more knowledge at this point. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. definitely been quite a roller coaster. <laughs> <laughs> um, which kind of moves us into talking about, um, the pandemic a little bit more mm -hmm. because a lot of people, you know, coming into a dental office, I have a background in microbiology, so I feel like I have a little bit of an advantage of <laughs> understanding <laughs> the virus. Um, but also, you know, people just going to restaurants, going to school, going to dental medical offices. Um, there's, there's been this huge kind of dip, right? Where we all stayed at home and now we're coming out of it. And how do we healthfully handle this? So, we have an expert that can mm -hmm. help us who's been dealing with it front line, like testing people for COVID, testing people for antibodies, mm -hmm. um, staying on top of the vaccine, giving parents advice day in, day out. So mm -hmm. I thought we would 
soak up a little bit of that knowledge if you'll let us. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, all right. So we've seen um, like mortality rate change from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, and even the severity of symptoms has changed a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, what are you currently seeing in kids and what kind of trend are you um, think we're headed towards maybe? Yeah, I mean, so for our own personal experience in my office, which will remind you is a low volume <laughs> pediatric practice, um, where parents call the minute they have a fever, um, you know, we have not had a problem. Okay. Uh, we've definitely had far more parents who tested positive. So we've tested kids and parents and grandparents and nannies and I feel like we test a lot of people. Yeah. Um, during July, there was a, a week or two where our positivity rate in our that we would test people was actually 20%. Okay. And I was like, well, we seem to have a little problem. And so we know that when the positivity rate goes up, mm-hmm. probably more than 5%, it's it's a little bit like, I, I call it kind of glitter. Okay. <laughs> it's kind of everywhere. Yeah. Um, and you know, the issue is some people will do fine. Mm-hmm. They will get exposed. And how their immune system responds to that is very different than how your immune system might respond to that. Yep. Although pregnant women have done fared fairly well too. Um, <laughs> so what we found over time is that the greatest risk factors were being, of course, elderly, yep. um, male, or at least going to the ICU. Okay. So <laughs> female. Females, <laughs> yay. Um, obesity. Yes. It took the CDC a long time to come out and say obesity was a risk factor, but my husband, who does critical care, yep. I mean, in July one day he had 40 ICU patients, 35 of them had COVID. He said all of them were obese, um, and that was the one predominant, and mostly male, and mostly over 50, and so or even 60, and so it really was, you know, predominant, you know, problem, um, and vitamin D deficiency has been an issue. You know, that. right for the ones. So we are recommending everyone keep up their vitamin D. We're going into winter, and everyone's level gets a little bit suppressed because we all hide inside. You think and C or D or both? D for sure. Okay. Yeah, D's no question. So now, having said that, pretty mild. And then we kind of saw these three different groups emerge um, in general around the, the world, or at least in this United States, is that we had the kind of mild symptoms which were, you know, maybe sinus pressure, headache, um, maybe fever, mm-hmm. um, and loss of smell and taste. Yep. That seemed to kind of go on a trajectory with a better prognosis. Okay. Then the middle group seemed to be this whole GI stuff. Okay. So some people unfortunately got some pretty good diarrhea or vomiting <laughs> as well. So yep. that was kind of harsh. And, you know, they might need IV fluids. I mean, they might not feel good at all. And then fatigue, you know, in general. And then the severe group seems like was, you know, not only fever and myalgias, but it was the chest pain, the difficulty breathing, the low oxygen. And they tend to have, some of them, a very downward trajectory. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because I always say patients are usually on a bit of a roller coaster, and you just have to see if that roller coaster is going up till you're getting better, or if it's going down and you're getting worse. Mm-hmm. But you can normally, day to day, easily figure that out. And in the pediatric realm, in general, we have not seen major problems. Um, similar to flu, you know, with the flu, even though it affects a lot of children every year, yep. the mortality is relatively very low. I'm right. around 150 children 
in the United States die of the flu every year. Yep. And I think the last time I saw data, there was about 133 pediatric COVID deaths, at least one or two weeks ago, that are related or attributed somehow to COVID. And if you compare that number to the adult population, there's zero contest, of course. But I always say, you only, if you only have one child or it's your one child, I mean, that number is too high. So, you know, protecting them the best we can while keeping them in school and trying to, you know, one of the big concerns we had in pediatrics is the mental health crisis from all the isolation in kids, especially the upper elementary, the middle school, the high schoolers who are now being socially isolated when it's such an important time for them not to be socially isolated. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That, you know, that's a huge concern that we have as well. And I think the other concern we had was that we basically saw a global vaccine, you know, um, decrease, <laughs> you know, a little bit of its own pandemic because patients were afraid to go to the doctor's office. Yep. And so vaccine rates fell. And I would say it probably fell globally, meaning worldwide, and that could be a problem. And, and you're so, talking like vaccines for... Um, childhood vaccines. Measles, mumps, yeah. rubella. Right. The um, flu vaccine, like things like that that are just normal. You're supposed to be on that schedule, right? Right. And so less kids we know during that time receive those. They're working on catching them up. Um, so from the pediatric standpoint, I and mean, we've definitely seen some cardiac issues in some kids, mm-hmm. although it's not a high number. You know, so we know that there are a few things that we look out for, but the good news is your pediatrician at this point, we really know what to look out for. So if you think your child has COVID, I do recommend they get tested. And if they've been exposed, I do recommend you get tested so that you can form your bubble (laughs) and isolate and try to minimize the spread because as the flu season starts, which really hasn't started yet, and the winter in Houston starts, you know, hang hang on to your hat because once people are all hiding inside, the rates of these respiratory illnesses always go up. Really? So is it the forced air, the heat, or is well, it just not part, going outside? Or? Part of it's not going outside. Part of it is when you run your heater at your house yeah. and it dries out your nasal passages. You know, the moist nasal passages are your first line of defense. <laughs> you know, got to keep that moist. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the people just, they get together, so they're not going to be doing an outdoor Christmas barbecue. <laughs> right? I mean, like... You know, I felt like there was a few different groups during the summer pandemic. The ones who had a pool in their backyard yep. and the ones who didn't. Because yep. <laughs> the people who had easy access to something like a pool, because it's so hot in Houston, yep. they were more comfortable being outside. People who didn't still had their friends come inside because it was so hot and humid. Yep. In the wintertime, no one's going to be hanging out in the pool. <laughs> no. No one's doing a barbecue. <laughs> And, you know, once it's cold, and then the respiratory droplets usually can spread better and farther in cold because the cold air kind of encapsulates it. So the flu spreads quite easily, and, of course, COVID also spreads quite easily. The masking should help. Okay. Um, So we're going to bank on... On masking. Masking. Get your flu shot and wear your mask. And, you know, the the big thing for us as pediatricians is we want to keep your kids in school. Yeah. That should be our number one priority. Um, and, of course, you know, the economy and everything else. But, you know, the kids being in school, I think everyone, if we can safely do that, then that's, you know, yeah. goal number one. And the school thing, why, what is the big thing that's making that so valuable for your children? Going to school? Yeah. Well, I mean, going to, as you know, if any of you have tried homeschooling or doing virtual learning. It's hard. 
It's really hard. I mean, our youngest is 13 in seventh grade, and so she knows how to work Zoom better than I do, right? I mean, other than getting her some blue light glasses so that the screen doesn't really bother her all day, those kids already know how to do that stuff, but they can't interact with their friends like they normally would. Yep. You know, when you're 13, you're supposed to be doing things like going boy crazy. Right? (laughs) Right? I mean, you're supposed to be doing things like that, and you're not. (laughs) You know, getting those social interactions with other teenagers or other kids your age if you're just behind the screen. And we already have a problem where kids have a hard time communicating sometimes because they got so used to just texting everyone. Really? Right. So, I mean, personal social interactions and being able to, as an adult, be at a cocktail party and just walk up to a random stranger and have a conversation is important. It's and still hard for adults sometimes. Yeah. And so it's a skill yeah. they have to practice and they start young. Yeah. Yeah. It's that social interaction thing. Okay. What, um, what do you think the false positive or false negative rate with the antigen testing? There's mm-hmm. been some news about mm-hmm. false positives with the antigens. Um, do you think that it's worth testing for antigens rather than just active COVID. Mm-hmm. How's that going? Well, I think it depends on the test. I mean, I think the thing to remember is that there's a lot of different type, a lot of different PCRs and a lot of different labs running PCR. PCR is the gold standard. Yeah. Um, and so it stands for polymerase chain reaction, in case you've ever wondered. <laughs> yeah. So that can detect the virus at a very low viral load. Yeah. So it's much better to use PCR even though you don't get the results in 15 minutes. Yep. We get the results the next morning, so it's it's as quick as it can get. Yeah. Um, we've made a lot of improvements in that time as well. Um, and there's a variety of different ways to do a PCR. You can do a nasal swab. You can do that dreadful nasopharyngeal swab, which I'll be honest, is like tickling the back of your throat through your nose. Not good. <laughs> it's not fun. I've had it done several times, and mm-hmm. I can't do it to myself, so that's like my cutoff. Um, <laughs> but the one we use is just a nasal swab inside your nose. And then saliva testing. So my daughter in college, they do weekly saliva testing um, where she goes to school. That's awesome. And so they have really kept their percent positivity rate quite low, less than 1%, really, because they kept testing and isolating and quarantining the student staff and so forth. So, you know, but around the country, it would be hard to do weekly because it's somewhat cost prohibitive. So the rapid antigen test is helpful if you're symptomatic. So say you come in and we're like, wow, you sound like you have COVID. At that point, we've probably not let you in. (laughs) We have probably met you outside uh, and said, it sounds like you have COVID. And then we do the rapid test and it's positive. I would just take that as positive. You have symptoms and it's positive, Yeah, that's positive. If it's negative, and I feel like we've had a bigger problem with false negatives, yep. if it's negative, send a PCR. And to be honest, even if that PCR is negative, wait a few days, maybe repeat a PCR. Um, you can be fooled. I mean, we definitely have false negatives. And so for me, I think I worry much more about false negatives than false positives. Yeah. Because it's always better to err on the side of caution. Agree. Yes. Than to say, oh, it's positive, but maybe that's not real. Right. Right. And so, especially if you're symptomatic. But I think it, you need about 50,000, you know, viral particles per little microliter um, in the rapid antigen test. Yep. 
as opposed to a minuscule amount. So you definitely have to have a higher viral load um, for the rapid test. You do? Yeah, and we offer both in the office. That way we send the PCR if the rapid's negative. Um, and the same is true for the rapid flu test. The same is true for the rapid strep test. Yeah. We always have sent a throat culture if the rapid strep's negative because we already knew there's like a 25% false negative rate. Right. Yeah. So, you know, we always say treat the patient in front of you. If they act like they have the flu and their flu test is negative, they have the flu. Yeah. <laughs> but with COVID, you kind of really want to know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think it's good that we understand that this is how it's always been. It's not like there's something wrong with the COVID testing or no, something. No, no. It just every test is not 100%. And We've never been able to get it there, so. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. What, oh, what percentage of your patients do you think didn't leave their home for at least <laughs> a very extended period of time? Yeah. Because um, you and I both had to leave our homes to make sure our patients were taken care of, right? So. Yeah. We were out right. and about. Um, and right. so, there, but there is a percentage of population that stayed home. Mm -hmm. And um, what... <laughs> Where do you think that falls on the continuum? Uh, so I think early in the pandemic, it was a high. Yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of people, March, April, May, yep. just, you know, I mean, plus the city had lots of rules. I mean, I remember having a letter in my car, so if I got pulled over, yep. <laughs> it was like, I'm supposed to be out. Mm -hmm. So once that kind of got lifted and they started opening restaurants and everything else, um, people obviously, and then, you know, they, we had protests and elections. I mean, we had lots of other stuff going <laughs> on. We did. And I think we also discovered that being outside is pretty safe. Yeah. And to be honest, being on an airplane, pretty safe. You know, they changed the circulation of the plane. They did. Southwest until this week, you know, kept the middle seats empty mm -hmm. um, and everyone had to wear a mask over the age of two. So they, they made these safety rules in place in order to protect air travelers as well. Yep. So I, now, the airports are much more, much less crowded. So I did see some pictures from Thanksgiving that were like, wow, it's a lot of people um, waiting for that airplane. So, you know, we might see a change as time goes on. Yeah. And I think that people, as we loosen restrictions, it also coincided with social, lack of socialization, okay. where people were like, I haven't caught it yet. And oh my gosh, I need to see my friends like they were weighing that risk benefit ratio in my family yes. and they were kind of erring on the side of I need to be social because yeah. we're social creatures by you know habit we are most people um and so yeah I think that you know it's kind of a little bit of a of a balance you know you have to you know take your risk a little bit so we definitely had families who were stayed home a long time mm -hmm. we've had several where we've still only done house calls we do house calls. <laughs> yep. Very, we're very popular. <laughs> house calls. Has um, that increased, do you think, over the last yeah, year? Yeah, we definitely saw more, even of our own patients who requested a house call. Okay. Um, or even new families who were like, we just want you to come in the house. And not only was it a house call, it was outside. And let me just tell you how hot it was in, in the June, summer. July, August. Wearing the gown. Yep. And the gloves and the goggles and the mask outside in 100 degrees. We were, yeah, Sweating. we honestly clapped for ourselves when we were done and felt <laughs> like we deserved extra gold stars <laughs> because there has to be a special place in heaven because that was really hot. 
Um, but you know, we needed to take care of the patient and we have to make sure they're comfortable in their comfort level. Some of those families have now been able to venture back out (laughs) um, and more comfortable. But I did a house call yesterday, awesome family. I've taken care of him since he was tiny, tiny. Um, and he's, he, he was six or five, five, he was six actually. And during his visit, they literally said, we haven't left the house since March. Oh my gosh. I know. And I was like, well, it's good to get out a little, but it's hard. You know, I think that they're really, there's some families who just really, for maybe a risk factor in their family, they're just not comfortable. Uh, and so, yeah, we'll work around that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's I always awesome. say you do you, yeah. but I'd like if you're going to do you, if you could wear a mask and socially distance, that would be ideal. Yeah. Right. Well, and you have to make sure everyone's comfortable. Like yeah, you of course. Just said. Um, and it's great that they have the option with you because, mm-hmm. I mean, three to five years ago, I don't know if anyone would have had that option, you know? Yeah. Well, we started seven years ago. So, you <laughs> so I guess seven years ago. <laughs> I know. Yeah. And I remember when I first started the practice, we had a specific house call plan that we had to grandfather out because it was too popular. Really? And then when p- patients finally came into the office, they're like, well, this is nice. I'm like, where have you been? <laughs> but there's a huge benefit to house calls. Like you meet the dog, you meet the grandparents. Yeah. You get to see them in their home environment and have a better understanding of their life in a sense. So yeah. I kind of I really enjoy doing house calls. Yeah. No. Sometimes I see some awesome art. I think that's probably pretty cool, right? (laughs) Yeah, I know. Well, that's interesting that you say that because there's actually been some schools, especially charter schools or some inner city schools, Mm -hmm. that started the in-home visit with their teachers at the beginning of the year. Mm -hmm. And it dramatically increased the interaction between the teacher and the child Mm -hmm. and how much the child could improve over the course of the school year. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's affecting your patient's health exponentially, just like the schools did. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, and I think that, you know, I get a lot of questions from parents even about diet for themselves or exercise or something. Because I do believe what you said, like it is, you know, practice what you preach. Um, And so if I'm going to say, hey, you really need to exercise this amount of time. Well, I need to exercise (laughs) at least that amount of time, you know. I mean, so it is a, a bit of practice what you're preaching. So being in their home, you really get a good sense of them and their environment. Definitely. Lots of dogs. Lots of dogs. Which is pretty good for people's immune systems, right? It is. I prefer less cats, but, uh, you know, because we have a few issues that I'm pretty allergic. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Maybe the outside's better than yeah, the outside, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, do we have any questions? We do have a question. Okay. And it's, um, what are your thoughts on the latest vaccine trial? Well, you know, they're kind of trying to finish the vaccine trials. Mm -hmm. There's so many options. Mm -hmm. Pfizer's the one that seems to be in Moderna coming out the quickest. Mm -hmm. I know that the hospital systems, like the major hospital systems, already have received or are receiving every single day their supply. And then, you know, the next phase is tearing it out to be able to say, I mean, obviously, first frontline healthcare workers in a hospital setting in the ER, you know, if you had to choose. Remember at the beginning of the pandemic, we didn't know about the GI problem. True. So we had patients coming into the ER with GI symptoms, and we were like, oh, we have gastroenteritis, but they didn't take any precautions with that patient. Whereas the people coming in with chest pain and I can't breathe, they were kind of obvious. Mm-hmm. You know? So once we discovered, oh, wait, people might not have symptoms and can be 
spreading it. People, I mean, then everyone became a bit of a target, but we didn't know that till quite a ways into it, and that was a bit of a problem. Um, so, you know, vaccinating the frontline healthcare workers, uh, my husband's in ICU, pulmonary, internal medicine. I mean, so they're probably, you know, much higher on the list because they're hospital based. Yeah. The second tier, at least from a healthcare worker perspective, is outpatient providers. Although I argue they're a bit of sitting ducks too, because you know they're seeing we're still seeing patients, of course, in the office, yeah. and then it'll kind of go down the line. I mean, I've some I've seen some data that says, you know, we could potentially vaccinate everyone by May. Yeah. <laughs> but then the other issue will be how many people actually want to get the vaccine, and then how many it really takes to get herd immunity, mm-hmm. and so those are the questions, and how long it lasts. We have right. a lot of questions left. Do we have another, do you know of another mRNA vaccine that we're currently using? No. I don't either. Okay. So the Pfizer and the Moderna are an mRNA vaccine, which um, is, creates a protein that your body reacts to rather than the traditional vaccine um, protocols, which are either a virus that's dead or it, um, it's a deactivated virus. So uh, I didn't explain those two right. It's a very different kind. So anyways... We haven't really seen long-term effects on the mRNA or anything, and I hadn't heard of another mRNA vaccine. I mean, I think they're trying to be very open and transparent that you might not feel great after you get the vaccine. So you know how people complain after they get the flu shot? Yep. Yeah. So, you know, one person getting a flu shot and having a bad reaction where they got fever or chills or, like, that's your immune system responding to the vaccine. So when that happens, I tell them, I said, well, trust me, if you got the actual flu, oh, you'd probably feel way worse. Yeah. And the only purpose of the flu vaccine really is to prevent you from dying of the flu mm-hmm. is to give you some antibody protection so that if the virus comes into your world, which it probably will, yeah. instead of you getting very sick, you have some protection so that you get a little sick and your immune system doesn't have to go crazy to try to treat, you know, to try to handle it. Because the symptoms you feel from, like, the flu is actually your immune system responding to the flu virus. Correct. Yeah. It's actually some very cool, like, you know, if you want to geek out, like, videos <laughs> on how the, how the flu actually works inside your body. So, you know, from that standpoint, COVID might be the same way. I mean, we, we know we want to not only decrease them getting very sick, we also want to decrease them potentially spreading it. And so we've never tried for herd immunity with the flu vaccine. We haven't. No, because it shifts too much, plus the vaccination rate's not high enough regardless. And so not enough people probably, you know, get the flu. And since it changes and we're kind of guessing which, you know, strains to use. Um, So with this one, their hope is that they get some herd immunity out of it as well. At least off the protein. Because the thing that made this particular coronavirus, because coronavirus has been around, it's the cold, right? Yeah. But this particular coronavirus was special, um, and it had this special protein on its outside that actually attached to your lungs and other parts of your body more easily so that you it was more contagious. Mm-hmm. And so it's that protein that's so unique, and that's why the mRNA is trying to replicate that protein. So then what you're doing is giving, if you can vaccinate against the protein, mm-hmm. you're giving everyone the immunity, or not immunity, but uh, at least preparing their body to respond to any coronavirus that has that particular protein attachment. Mm-hmm. And so that's what's kind of cool about it. So, because coronaviruses mutate pretty fast, it's faster, faster than the flu. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have other common colds going through the population that aren't 
COVID-19 that we have to deal with. But we also, you know, I think the promising thing with the vaccine is if we can get that, um, the attachment under control, or at least that's how I'm viewing it. Okay. So. I think it's uh, fair. That was very geeky. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. It was very sciencey. So, Yeah. If y'all have questions, you can ask me more. <laughs> Hopefully, I know the answer. <laughs> I, I tend to read about it. So that's good. Yeah. Um, well, is there anything else you want to go over with that that you know patients have been asking you that's common that I had not remembered to ask you or anything? Um, I don't know if they've. I mean, they've asked a lot about going to school, about traveling, about visiting grandma. Yes. We've done a lot of COVID testing PCR for mm-hmm. travel. Um. You really need to pay attention to where you're traveling and what their rules are, by the way, before you try to get on an airplane and get turned away. So that's really important. Um, Because some, like Hawaii, only has a specific list of PCR they'll actually accept from certain labs. You know, so don't get on a United plane thinking you're going to Hawaii, then you find out you're not going to Hawaii. So, you know, if you're going to travel, and I... For me, I feel like I know a lot of people who still plan to do some sort of travel. Um, You know, if you're going to see relatives, the greatest risk seems to really be being inside with a group of people you know, all hanging out together in a buffet. Like, I think we are done with buffets for a while. (laughs) There's probably a lot of other reasons to stay away from the buffet, (laughs) but this is maybe the the best reason to avoid, you know, to avoid it. Um, so yeah, so they've asked more about traveling safely during the pandemic and trying to live as close to a normalish life as they can, you know, once they got past Zoom right. <laughs> and understanding how Zoom works and how to homeschool their children. And, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. so, and, you know, we've been fairly supportive of doing, you know, what we felt was to be safe and then keeping in mind who your risk factors are at home. If right. you live with an elderly person in your home, then I would avoid doing a lot of things. And I would avoid bars anyway, Yeah. but that was never my thing. So <laughs> that was easy. Right. Yeah. And, you know, but it's going to be harder to stay out at indoor restaurants as it gets colder. It is. They'll have to bring out those heaters. <laughs> and Houston doesn't have, like, a plethora of heaters because it's so warm most of the year. Yeah. Oh, I know. So you've got to pick your restaurant carefully. Yeah, I mean, it would be great if we have less mask life by the summer. Sure. Because the summer was really hot, but we'll see. And I think just time will tell, and everyone just keep a positive attitude and, you know, just try to do your best and your part. Yeah. Well, we're super grateful that Dr. Elena came by and was willing to talk to us. Do we have any other questions online? Either Claudia on your Facebook or Mika on Instagram? No, we do not. Okay. All right. Well, go ahead and tell them um, how they can find you, website, social media handles. Oh, gosh. Social media handles. I think <laughs> pure pediatrics is only one word, and that's how you find us for everything. Yep. It literally is just pure pediatrics for whether it's social media or Facebook. Um, we do like to post helpful either videos or tips on our Facebook page. They're great. Uh, I yeah. feel like Instagram, we just read stories. Uh, so if you need a bedtime story, so, but other than that, uh, not, not, not terribly much else. And then, you know, helpful, I guess, medical information. I think it's very educational what you put out. So I appreciate it. Good. (laughs) How to sleep. How to sleep. Yes. Um, okay. Well, thank you so much. And we'll go ahead and sign off and thank you guys for visiting us. Thanks. Bye.
feel bad. I feel like I never actually looked at that camera because I kind of forgot about it, but it's okay. It's okay. When you're talking, I know, like, when I was talking at yours, like, you forget where you're looking sometimes. <laughs> like, it's like, do I look at you? Do I look at no, you? Yeah. But, but, like, but what's worse is 